0: Last week, we looked at major differences in how Methodists and Catholics look at the Church, and what Christ means by that term, at the papacy, and at church history. But today, I wanted to respond to a few particular issues that have been raised about Scripture and tradition, about which books belong in the Bible, about purgatory, Mary and the saints, and the sacraments, especially the Eucharist and marriage. your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer, and welcome to the Catholic Podcast. This is part two of a two-part series, which I'm responding to Adam Hamilton, the senior pastor at CORE, the Church of the Resurrection, the nation's largest United Methodist Church, as well as an ex-Dominican named Father Joe Tortorici. If you haven't listened to part one, I would invite you to do that first. Otherwise, let's jump into the key doctrines that the two of them raised. The first is about scripture. It's about what Protestants call sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And that's a term I think we Catholics often misunderstand. So I want to let Adam explain in his own words.
1: In the Protestant Reformation, it began to feel like in the years and decades leading up to the Reformation, that the tradition of the church and the teaching of the church was of paramount importance. It was foremost. It was the most important thing from which the church derives its doctrine. It's the church's developing doctrine. It's sharing doctrine. Luther comes back and says, wait a minute. We need to remember that our scriptures, are our foundational document, that the Bible is for us where we find the material out of which our tradition and our doctrine develops.
0: Now, there are a lot of different ways of defining and understanding sola scriptura, but I think that this is the best one. It's not the only book you'll ever need is the Bible. It's much more nuanced than that, more nuanced than I think we Catholics sometimes give Protestants credit for being. And on its face, I think it seems extremely reasonable. I mean, after all, The Holy Book of Christians is the Bible, right? So why don't we all agree that all teaching should come from the Bible? Let me pose three questions for you to think about, remember, and ask next time someone mentions Sola Scriptura to you. These three questions are simple, don't really require a very deep knowledge of Scripture. Ready? Question one. Was Sola Scriptura true at the time of the Apostles? I mean, think about it. There was no New Testament at the time. It was still being written. So it's not like Christ or the Apostles showed up and said, simply keep believing everything in the Old Testament. No, people were called to believe both the revelation that had already been written down, the Old Testament, and this new revelation that they were hearing preached orally, the Gospel. So before there was ever a New Testament in writing, things being described were just happening in real life. Like the events that we would later describe as New Testament events at one point were just life going on. So Jesus and the Apostles didn't teach Sola Scriptura because it wasn't true at the time of their preaching. Makes sense? So question two, is there anywhere in Scripture that teaches Sola Scriptura? Well, think about what we just said. If Jesus and the apostles didn't teach it, if it wasn't true during their lifetimes, it's pretty clear that the New Testament doesn't teach it. And that's a big problem for Protestantism. If the claim is that all teachings should come from Scripture, then obviously that teaching should come from Scripture. But it doesn't. Now, Adam doesn't get this granular on the question of Sola Scriptura. But some Protestants, when you confront them with this, will point to 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. In there, St. Paul commends Timothy to hold to the biblical teachings he learned from his youth, that is, the Old Testament Scriptures, because, quote, All Scripture is inspired by God literally the word there is God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the people who point to this will often say something like, well, if you need this to be complete, that's all you need. But logically, that doesn't actually make any sense. I mean, if you haven't seen Return of the Jedi, your viewing of the Star Wars trilogy isn't complete. You need to see it to be complete, but that doesn't mean it's the only movie you have to see. In fact, it's the worst of the three, but that's separate for a totally different kind of podcast. Seriously, though, if Sola Scriptura wasn't true at the time of the Apostle Paul, then obviously he wasn't teaching it in 2 Timothy or anywhere else. Because Paul didn't say uh, that all Christian doctrine was written down simply because it wasn't. I mean, the, the four Gospels hadn't even been written yet. St. Paul actually rejects Sola Scriptura pretty explicitly, I think, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So it's, again, this call to hold to both the things God's revealed that have been written down and the things God's revealed that haven't been written down. So Protestants aware of this problem, will often claim that at some point in church history, every important Christian doctrine gets written down, it gets included in scripture, these scriptures are recognized by the church, they're organized, they're a symbol, they become what we now think of as the Bible, and at that point, we no longer need anything else. That's a weird argument. Because saying, yeah, the New Testament didn't teach Sola Scriptura, and yeah, the New Testament actually taught the opposite, but my knowledge of church history is so good, that I'm going to take that rather than the teachings of the Bible itself. This has always struck me as kind of odd. You'll find Protestants who attack Catholics for believing in allegedly unbiblical doctrines, like the Assumption of Mary, but who themselves believe in this pretty blatantly unbiblical doctrine that all doctrines must come from the Bible. Now all of this is presupposing something pretty fundamental, though, which is that we know what the Bible is. Which leads to the third of the three questions. So question three. Where in the Bible does it say which books belong in the Bible? Now, let's say a person says, okay, I want to follow Jesus. I believe what you're saying about Sola Scriptura. How do I know where I can turn for reliable information about him? And you respond with, well, my Bible contains these books. Well, if they're a thoughtful person, they're going to ask you, well, how do you know that those are the right books? Because here's the thing, there's no divinely inspired table of contents revealed through one of the apostles. So the person defending Sola Scriptura ends up arguing all doctrines must come from scripture, and if you ask, okay, sounds good, which scripture? They're just like, I don't know for sure. Now even if we all agreed which books belonged in the Bible, you'd have to say all teachings must come from the Bible except the teaching about which books belong in the Bible, because that's something we just all agree on, Oh, and also accept the teaching that all teachings must come from the Bible, because that's just something Martin Luther made up. So again, that's a problem we would have if we all agreed which books belong in the Bible. What makes this weirder is that we don't, and that anyone familiar with the history has to face the fact that Protestant Bibles wouldn't have been recognized by the early Christians. I mean that Protestants removed several books from the Bible. So you'd be hard-pressed to find one person before the Reformation who actually used a 66-book Bible like Protestants do today. Now, there were a couple of people, specifically St. Jerome and St. Rufnus, who argued that we ought to have a Bible like that. But unlike Luther, they deferred to the Church. So you'll find Jerome specifically citing uh, these bo- disputed books as inspired, for example. And what are the books I'm talking about here? Well, we Catholics often, confusingly, Call these the Deuterocanon. Protestants tend to call them in some other books the Apocrypha, which is even more confusing. But these are books that we consider to be as inspired as the rest of the Old Testament. More specifically, we're talking here about First and Second Maccabees, Sirach, Wisdom, Baruch, Judith, and Tobit. Now we also accept uh, the Greek versions, which are longer versions, of the books of Esther and Daniel. So you're about to hear from Adam. These are books which were in the Greek version of the Bible prior to Christianity, which means that they were in the version of the Bible, which Jesus and the evangelists most frequently quote from. It means that they were in the Bible of the noble Bereans in Acts 17, who were Greek-speaking Christians, who were praised for poring over the scriptures to find the truth of the New Testament hidden in the Old. And it means that they were part of the Christian Bible from the very start. So I'm going to let Adam kind of take it from here.
1: I'd remind you that as Christianity emerges in the first century, it begins to be preached. Paul takes the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, and most of the people in the Roman Empire speak Greek. So they didn't have a New Testament. Their Bible is the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. They're looking for their Bible. They're looking for it in the Greek language. They're taking the Bible as it was in Alexandria, Egypt, with these additional texts in it, these additional six books. And so the Bible of the church for hundreds of years, probably up until the time of the was largely, the version that we have in the in the Roman Catholic Old Testament.
0: This is part of a much bigger discussion uh, that Adam has on the Deuterocanon. And he gets a few of the details wrong, nothing too crucial. Uh, a few important details just to correct. He says that Luther called these books Deuterocanonical, meaning a second canon. Actually, we Catholics are the ones who call them that, to acknowledge that they are disputed, but they are part of the canon. While Luther called them Apocrypha, which means hidden, And there's a whole confusing history of that term. Well, an important detail in all of this is that both Luther and St. Jerome before him uh, assumed, like one of their big arguments for why we should use what we would now call the Protestant Old Testament is because the Jews of the time of Christ didn't have these books in their Bible. But they were making that assumption based on the fact that Jews several centuries later didn't have the books. One of the things Adam draws out and as we just heard a little bit of in the clip I just played, is that the Greek version of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, that was translated a couple centuries before the time of Christ, did have these books. So, after the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, uh, Jews largely soured on Greco-Roman culture, and there was something of a purge of Greek influences in Greek thought, including the Greek version of the Bible. But all of that comes after Christ. so It doesn't make a lot of sense to say, Well, these books were accepted at the time of Christ by Jews, they were accepted by the earliest Christians, but because later Jews rejected them, we should remove them from the Christian Bible. That's an odd argument when you're aware of the actual history. It's also worth mentioning here that Luther rejected not only these books of the Old Testament, but books in the New Testament as well. Specifically in his version of the Bible, he rejects and explains why he rejects Hebrews, James, Jude, which he considers to be just a copy of 2 Peter, and the book of Revelation. So here's the standard that Luther explains for determining which books he's going to accept or reject. This is in the context of his explanation for why he's rejecting Revelation. He says, quote, Finally, let everyone think of it as his own spirit leads him. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough to not think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. But to teach Christ, this is the thing which an apostle is bound above all else to do. As Christ says in Acts 1, You shall be my witnesses. Therefore, I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely. End quote. So I guess this is an honest question for my Protestant listeners Is this a biblical standard you'd be comfortable enforcing? Choose your own Bible based on whatever feels right? Because Revelation does teach about Jesus all over the place. It's a revelation of Jesus and of heavenly glory to John. But Luther didn't feel like his own spirit really got it, so he just chucks it. Now, if you're comfortable with this, if you're comfortable with the build your own Bible approach, I don't think Sola Scriptura means anything. Like I don't think it means anything to say that teachings need to come from scripture if scripture doesn't mean anything fixed beyond whichever books you happen to accept or reject. Now, if you're not comfortable with a build your own Bible, on what basis do you reject the Bible that the church used? And whose Old Testament is based on the Jewish texts that the very first Christians used? One of the reasons that this debate matters about which books belong in the Bible is that one of the biggest issues for Martin Luther and the Reformation more broadly is purgatory.
1: And as Adam points out, Most of the verses that relate to this come from the Apocrypha, if I'm, not for, if I have, if I'm uh, remembering Maccabees. properly. Uh, Maccabees and maybe something in Sirach, I I don't remember now, but... He's right. So in other words, it means that Luther demands
0: that the church prove purgatory from Scripture, the church does so, and Luther's just like, well, I don't consider those books Scripture anymore. See the problem? The same is true in the debate over justification, that is, about how we're saved. When Luther first starts making his arguments about justification, about salvation being by faith alone, one of the Catholic responses is to point to James, which is very clear about the need for works along with faith. Luther's response, as we've just heard, is to take James out of the Bible. Now, he even explained that it was because he considered James to be, quote, flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of scripture in ascribing justification to works, end quote. So Luther sees that his own doctrine of sola fide, salvation by faith alone, is contrary to what James is teaching. But rather than changing his teaching, or seeing how the church is able to harmonize what James says and what Paul says, he concludes that the Bible's contradicting itself. And to solve this, he just chucks James. I mean, as I'm describing this, I'm envisioning like a mobster who says, nobody will testify against me. And then whenever witnesses step forward, he kills them. Yeah, if you take out everyone who testifies against you, Luther, nobody's going to testify. You can't just take out Second Maccabees, Sirach, James and anything that doesn't fit neatly within your theological system. Fortunately, Pastor Adam is much more reasonable. He's already basically owned that Catholics have a better claim to trace their biblical canon, the books of their Bible, back to the time of Christ. And on Purgatory too. he's very reasonable. In fact, This is maybe the most interesting part of the four weeks. Father Tortorici is against purgatory and totally misunderstands it. And Pastor Adam keeps gently correcting him, which is kind of a surreal thing.
2: Now, I think of the thief on the cross. Yeah. Today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. And Jesus saying from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yeah. Now that forgiveness seems to be okay um, that they receive that forgiveness and possible grace from that prayer of Jesus Himself.
1: Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. The, um, <clears throat> the today you'll be with me in paradise is interesting because to me that certainly is, and, and I would say consistent with what I think the church might teach about purgatory. You're not not with Christ. You're not not in the realm of the saved. Mm-hmm. But you still got some learning to do. <laughs>
0: It's a great correction because he's very gently establishing two things that people really get wrong about purgatory frequently. Number one, the folks in purgatory, they're already saved. And number two, this is about sanctification, meaning growth and holiness, not about earning salvation. So the people in question, the souls in purgatory, they're already united with Jesus. They're already headed to heaven. but They have to grow. There's this great bit where they're trying to remember Mother Angelica's name because one of the reasons Pastor Adam understands purgatory is he saw a clip of her discussing it on EWTN. Her example is really helpful. She just says, basically, if you're going to meet a famous dignitary, you're going to go meet like the prime minister or the king or somebody like that, you're not going to show up in raggedy clothes. You're not going to show up looking like trash. And if you're familiar with Jesus's parable where he's talking about Uh, the wedding banquet and the guest who shows up poorly dressed for it. That's a good analogy. But this means that if you're going to meet the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of the universe, you really want to get dressed up. You really want to make sure your manners are in order. You really want to make sure you're well behaved. You know how to act before heavenly glory. So that's what this is. It's just basically Christian finishing school. It's not jail because, like, you've been such a wicked person. That doesn't mean... Mind you, that purgatory is not painful. This is where Adam kind of goes with it. He says he accepts the idea of purgatory, kind of in this finishing school vision, but doesn't like the idea of like fire or pain or anything like that. Well, think about what's meant here. The painful part about purgatory is that growth and holiness almost always hurts. Being freed from your worldly attachments doesn't feel good. Now, if you don't believe me, good news. We're only a couple days away now from Ash Wednesday. Lent is about to begin. Give up your favorite bad habits for Lent. And let me know how it feels. I mean, it's good for you. It's something you rationally know you want to do, but it still hurts. You're not punishing yourself. You're not mad at yourself, but it's still painful. So it's Protestants, really, who in denying purgatory are left asserting a strange exception to God's normal way of doing things. With rare exception, all real growth happens through pain, through suffering. Uh, growing pains if you will. I mean we even have a term for it. So God doesn't save us in Jesus painlessly but through the agonies of the cross. He doesn't call us to follow him painlessly but to take up our cross and follow him. So at every turn you got the devil in the world on one side promising us comfort and instant gratification and Christ calling us to greatness. And this really I mean even if you're not a believer just think about anything in your life that you're really pleased with or proud of, or any real achievement you've ever had or striving for. Whether it's passing a class or getting a degree or excelling at your job or dieting or running a marathon or having a kid or raising kids. Well, any of these things probably have a tremendous amount of suffering. There was probably a tremendous amount of you know cost that went into it. And that's the way St. Paul presents the Christian life. like. A marathon that only one person is gonna win Like you need to go for the gold so that's this whole notion the Catholic belief in purgatory isn't coming from some perverse love of pain but out of a deep familiarity with God's plan that we want to grow in holiness and that typically hurts now the whole discussion between Adam and Father Toro Ricci on this takes about seven minutes but there are several good parts for time reasons I'm gonna just kind of add a couple things first uh, there's a prayer for the dead in the Old Testament, even in the parts that Luther accepts. They're right. Most of the passages um, are coming from the Deuterocanon, which Luther considered the Apocrypha. but there are a, a couple exceptions to this. And I'm actually indebted to Mother Angelica in the talk that Pastor Adam mentioned because I went and found it online, all included in the show notes. Uh, but one of the points she makes that i'd never really noticed was that at the end of first samuel 31 after king saul and his men die the people fasted for them for a week even today jewish people pray for the dead if you've ever heard of sitting shiva after someone dies it's a very ritualized way of dealing with death and it includes prayers for the departed but think about it if a person is already in heaven or in hell it'd be pointless to pray for them if, if nothing is going to change in their state you either have no need to pray for them because they're perfectly content or it's too late to pray for them. So the fact that they're praying for the dead tells us that there's a Jewish belief in a temporary intermediate state, in which our prayers still matter. And if you read, uh, for example, the Jewish encyclopedia's entry on this point, it confirms that. So in both of the major rabbinical schools, there's a belief in some sort of intermediate state. There's you know differences about what that looks like. But one of the most important Jewish rabbis of the first century, a guy named Yonan ben Zakai, actually describes a supernatural encounter in which he claims to have met a man who had been suffering uh, fiery punishment after death and said that he would continue to until his son learned how to pray. So he could be basically prayed out of this purgative state. Now, make of that encounter what you will. I'm not saying this guy said it happened, so it really did. But I am saying one of the most important Jewish rabbis of the first century, a guy who's quoted in the Talmud and in the Mishnah uh, talks about this and certainly it's part of Jewish belief. So it points to the fact that Jews have believed in an intermediate state, something like purgatory, before entry in heaven uh, for as long as Christianity has existed and actually much longer. And we certainly don't find Jesus or the apostles correcting this belief. Now I've written on this in a shameless popery article entitled Jewish Purgatory, so I'll link it to the show notes as well. But basically, this isn't just some medieval theory or something like this. This is something that dates back really uh, to the early Christians, to the time of Christ, even to the Old Testament. The flip side, though, to us praying for folks in purgatory is our asking folks in heaven to pray for us. So as a Catholic, um, I go into these conversations, when I hear that two Protestants are going to be talking about marrying the saints. I, I go in, I guess, with lowered expectations. But I want to tell you, I was pleasantly surprised Now, that doesn't mean it was perfect, but it was better than a lot of these conversations. So if I were to give some highs and lows, my low would be this.
2: So virgin birth or not, immaculately immaculately conceived or not, we can debate a lot of that doctrine. Um, But in the end, fundamentally, she is a humble servant to her God, and she followed in her son's footsteps.
0: Now that's a far cry from the Methodism of John Wesley, Methodism's founder, who said in his letter to a Roman Catholic that he believed Jesus was, quote, born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who, as well after as before she brought him forth, continued a pure and unspotted virgin, end quote. In other words, one of the earliest bits of common ground between Methodists and Catholics was precisely that we believe not only in the virgin birth, but also in Mary's perpetual virginity even after the birth. So shrugging all of that off as unimportant detail, I think is a major step backwards rather than forward. But the high point in the conversation, that's all I was gonna say about that, the high point is this one.
1: When God came in human flesh, it was in her womb. There is no other human being who suffered more for us except Jesus and for our salvation than the Virgin Mary.
0: No big comment to make in response to that. It's just stinking cool to hear a Protestant who gets it. Adam actually does a really good job of showing that we care about Mary because we care about Jesus. That doctrines like Theotokos, Mary's the mother of God, are because we're trying to affirm not just great stuff about Mary, but more fundamentally great stuff about God, that Jesus really is God. And Father Torricci, he also does a good job. He shows that Mary and the saints can be really helpful in people's spiritual journeys. So it's a good way of balancing out, I think a lot of the fears that sometimes get in the way. I mean, think about it. In Luke 1, Mary says, "'All generations will call me blessed.'" She's prophetically foretelling that Christians are gonna be devoted to her. Now I get why Protestants are scared of, you know, going too far with Mary, as if they're gonna love her more than her own son does. But that fear is ultimately contrary to what scripture, and even what Mary herself, teaches about devotion to her. Now, I want to be very clear here that I'm not saying everything a Catholic might say or do regarding Mary or the Saints is okay. The two of them validly, I think, called out the frankly superstitious practice some Catholics have, it's never been condoned by the Church, of putting a St. Joseph statue upside down in the yard to sell a house. That's not a pious devotion to a saint. That's the kind of superstition uh, that the Catechism of the Catholic Church condemns in paragraph 2111, uh, when it warns against instances in which quote, one attributes an importance in some way magical to certain practices otherwise lawful or necessary, end quote. In other words, praying to St. Joseph is good, statues of St. Joseph are good, asking him to help you sell a house is good, but treating a St. Joseph statue like a lucky charm? That's superstition. Now you'll notice I just said praying to St. Joseph a second ago. Now, that was one of Adam's questions. Do Catholics pray to the saints? Short answer is yes, but we don't mean the same thing Protestants do by prayer. Now, the word prayer always just means, or like originally meant, request. So we have phrases like pray tell, or in legalese, uh, to pray the court for relief. So it's in that sense of asking that we pray to the saints. We ask them for things. We ask them for their prayers to God. But that's not the same as worship. So we also pray to God by asking him for things. And sometimes loosely we'll talk about all of our conversation with God as prayer. Uh, But the reality is that we worship God and we don't worship Mary or the saints. But it's okay to pray to other people. I mean, literally asking someone else for help in the, the literal sense of prayer, the way we mean prayer, is prayer. That's not how Protestants usually use the word prayer. And so I understand why they're confused and sometimes scandalized by it. But it doesn't magically become worship just because the person is dead instead of alive, or they're in heaven instead of on earth, or they're an angel instead of like a human being. So that's the, like I said, short-ish answer to Adam's question. But his big struggle is actually the idea uh, that Mary and the saints can't hear us all.
1: You know, I don't think Mary doesn't have the same attributes of God in terms of uh, omnipresence. Mary is not everywhere, uh, so I don't like the saying. I don't believe that I pray to her and she has to hear immediately. She's got important things she's doing in heaven too. She's a human being.
0: Now it's worth noting that neither men's view of heaven is ultimately, I think, coherent uh, because elsewhere Adam suggests that Mary isn't even in heaven because nobody's in heaven yet.
1: As we look at it, people ask, "What happens to us when we die?" and and you know we're left with first century. Uh, Jewish thinking about this, and most Christians don't even understand that, that there's this place of the dead. You're not in heaven yet, but you're in paradise, and paradise is this temporary place where at the last resurrection, you're resurrected from the dead. And the truth is none of us really knows because none of us have been there yet and come mm-hmm. back.
0: And Father Torricci attempts to disprove the idea of purgatory by suggesting that
2: heaven and in eternity, there is no time. You know that, right? There's no clocks. There's no calendars. Everything is the eternal now. But look, all of that just can't be true together. I mean, these are three contradictory
0: positions. Number one, the saints aren't in heaven. Number two, the saints are in heaven, but experience time like we do, and so they're going to be overwhelmed if all of us pray to the same one. Or number three, that the saints are in heaven, and there is no time, just an eternal present. Now notice, no two of those three positions can be right, and the two of them are arguing for all three. Now, in fact, uh, the Catholic Church would say all three of those positions are wrong. And the best theologians give really good reasons why. I want to just point this out, not to not to embarrass him for, you know, making some contradictions in the course of seven hours of talking, understandably. My point is just that ob- objections to Mary and the saints are overwhelmingly based on a poor theology of heaven because very few of us spend any real time praying thinking, meditating on what heaven is really like, much less grounding that in scripture or in theology or the writings of the great saints. It's just not true uh, that we're left only with first century Jewish speculations about the afterlife. That's just not true. The New Testament has revealed a great deal about heaven. And there is someone who died and came back and lived to tell about it. Jesus Christ. So even though it's true that the full glory is something that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, there are bits that he's revealed and they're really worth considering, contemplating, meditating on, praying on. For example, in Revelation, John already sees the martyrs in heaven and he sees those in heaven offering up prayers. So That shows us already the first position is wrong, that the saints aren't in heaven and therefore they can't do anything. The scripture also reveals to us uh, something about what our experience of time will be like when we're freed from our mortal and bodily limitations. We get a hint of this in the way that we hear angels talked about. Uh, So in Matthew 18, uh, verse 10, Jesus says of guardian angels, quote, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven, end quote. Notice that always. So they're, they're always guarding particular souls and always beholding God. And this isn't diverting their attention one from the other, that God doesn't say, if you want to love me, you have to turn away from the people that you love, or if you want to love them, you have to turn away from me. Like, think about it, that doesn't, it, that's not true. It's, it's not the way it works. Like growing closer to God, we thereby grow closer to each other. So we don't turn away from the vision of God to behold uh, people made in his image and likeness. Now, likewise, uh, the angel Gabriel says something similar uh, to Zechariah when he's skeptical in Luke 1. He says, I am Gabriel who stand in the presence of God, not who has stood or who sometimes stand." Like There's this sense of this perpetual presence uh, in front of God that isn't exclusive of him also doing things like appearing to Zechariah or to Mary or to Daniel. And If you think about it, even your own limited human experience, take something like dreaming. When your intellect isn't bound to your senses, you often have a very different experience of time, even in this world. So I think something similar, but more pronounced, seems to be what's suggested by the scriptural evidence about the angels. Um, But it doesn't mean (laughs) that either angels or the saints experience time as an eternal now in the way that God does. And uh, this is not, I mean, it's not what good theologians have ever taught. Uh, they t- sometimes speak about simply eternity and like other modes basically of, of the way the experience of time might work Now I want to mention it's not just saints and angels that This is true of and this is something that I think a thoughtful Protestant will notice if you take the devil seriously You've got to recognize that he can and does Observe you you know st. John speaks of Satan in revelation as the deceiver of the whole world not the deceiver of those parts of the world he happens to get to working at you know 35 miles an hour or something st. Peter describes him as prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour that's first Peter 5:8. so throughout scripture uh, we see Satan personally ensnaring people uh, he does it with Judas he does it with Ananias in Acts 5 even with King David in first Chronicles 21 so if Satan's not too distracted to notice what's going on here on earth I think it would be bizarre uh, to affirm a theology that says the saints in heaven are in this respect inferior to the devil in hell, or that they're somehow less interested in life on earth. So all of these arguments against Mary and the saints that, oh, they can't hear us because we can't hear us. If, you know, if 20 people talked to me at once, I wouldn't be able to hear them. Well, okay, this is just like way too human, way too limited a conceptualization of what scripture promises about the afterlife. But I think ultimately, Adam lays out the best solution to his own problem by pointing to the role of God.
1: If you tell God, God, would you please let my mom know that I'm thinking about her right now? I have no doubt God passes on that message. Would you let my child who died several years ago know how deeply I love them? I have no doubt that God passes on that message. I don't know about the conversations i do know about the conversation with god that we pass on and i do that on a regular basis with for my deceased loved ones
0: think about it if your deceased loved ones can know that you're praying for them or praying to them because god will ensure that they do follow that logic to suggest that mary will get overloaded because too many people are asking her for things or too many people are praying to her too many people are thanking her is both to take a too earthly view of heaven And I think in a real way to suggest that these prayers are ultimately too much for God to share with Mary. (laughs) So it's not just saying that the devil is more powerful than Mary, but it even seems to suggest that he's more powerful than God. So I think we have to say (laughs) God is powerful enough to make sure that these messages get transmitted. You don't have to know all the ins and outs of heaven to see what a bad objection that is. We're talking about heaven here. We're not talking about like, Kmart or something where like you might get overworked because you've got too many things going on at once. But then that just means that Mary and the saints can hear our prayers. The other objection Adam kind of raises somewhat is he's he's afraid that this would make heaven worse because they'll get distracted from enjoying heaven by looking over their loved ones. But I think that just fundamentally misunderstands uh, the Christian message of love, that in loving other people, you're not being drawn away from the love of God, just like you're not being distracted from the beatific vision. But This is one of the ways you experience the love of God is by loving neighbor. Now, I know, based on other things he said, that he wouldn't follow that logic out if he really, like, carefully laid it out. I think that a few things he sort of half thought about um, are leaving, leading him to kind of an errant conclusion here. So, there we go. There's Mary in heaven. But here I want to actually circle around again to the start of the discussion about the place of scripture. Because Adam has a helpful description of the Methodist position, which again is more complicated than some of the Catholic stereotypes of Sola Scriptura.
1: So uh, the church uh, we speak of as tradition. So in Methodism, we speak about scripture as foundational, interpreted with the help of the tradition of the church, the church of the thought through the ages, with the help of our intellect or reason, and with the help of our experience of the witness of the Holy Spirit.
0: I want to focus specifically on the way he describes the relationship between Scripture and tradition because he talks about tradition as being the interpretive guide uh, for understanding Scripture. Now again, we've already heard the problems with taking Scripture alone, but I think he's right that we should understand Scripture through the lens or the prism of tradition. But if that means anything, I think it means that you cannot just come along and say, hey, everybody before me misunderstood what God meant here. Here's what he actually meant. Because if you're going to say that, you're not just insulting every Christian who came before you. You're insulting God by saying that he revealed himself so badly that only you could understand him in 2,000 years too late. But as we're about to see, I think that's almost exactly the view uh, that Adam and Father Torricci end up inadvertently taking on the Eucharist and the sacraments. I want to talk about the Eucharist first, because I know this is a part that drove a lot of Catholics nuts. This is Adam talking about what Jesus may have actually meant at the Last Supper.
1: When Jesus was at the Last Supper, transforming the bread and the wine, he is taking the Passover Seder, which happened once a year in Israel, and he's transforming that the meaning of that meal into a sign of his Death and a resurrection for us of his delivering us. One could argue that he was saying, every time you do this, as in every time you have the Passover Seder, which would be once a year, do this and remember me. One could also argue that at every meal, or virtually every meal in the ancient world, you have bread and wine, it's possible that he was saying there at the Last Supper, as often as you do this, that is, as often as you eat. Do this and remember me. Every time you break bread, stop and remember I am the bread of life. Every time you drink from the cup, remember I. It is my blood that's shed for you.
0: Now this seems to be exactly how not to interpret scripture. That maybe Jesus tried to give instructions for perpetual Christian practice, but he revealed himself so badly that nobody got what he meant. Here's the thing. Most Protestants don't get this wild with their Eucharistic theories, but they'll say what Adam says elsewhere in his discussion. Namely, Maybe the Eucharist is just a symbol, or maybe Christ is present in the bread and wine in some way, or maybe it really does become his body and blood. Who can know? But look, that's ultimately the same problem. It assumes that Christ gave us the scriptures, but doesn't guide the church's understanding of the scriptures. The scriptures by themselves are worthless if you cannot tell if Jesus is saying, celebrate the Passover every year, or have Catholic mass, or don't have Catholic mass, or just say your prayers before you eat. I mean, this is a situation Jesus describes in Matthew 16. Who do men say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Without any sort of guidance from the church, without any sort of guidance ultimately from the Holy Spirit leading the church, even well-meaning faithful people trying to follow Jesus will without fail go astray into their own private errant opinions. Nobody just picking up the Bible interprets it all correctly. Nobody just says, ah, I get 100% of this without any sort of help. And the point he had just made in the scripture and tradition part was, of course, that's why you need the ongoing guidance of the church and of tradition. But you can't say that in in one breath and then in another say, and maybe everyone's totally wrong about the Eucharist. The stakes here are huge after all. Either Catholics are committing idolatry by worshiping bread and wine and no one was right about the Eucharist for 1,500 years. Or Protestants are missing out on Jesus' full gift of himself, flesh and blood, that he promised in John 6 and again at the Last Supper. At the end of the day, I can't describe it any better uh, than the 20th century author Flannery O'Connor did when she wrote the following words to a Protestant correspondent. Quote, we mean entirely different things. When we each say we believe the church is divine you mean the invisible church with somehow related to it in many forms whereas i mean one and only one visible church it's not logical to the catholic to believe that christ teaches through many visible forms all teaching contrary doctrine you speak of the well-known facts of christ's life but these facts are hotly contested the virgin birth the resurrection the very divinity of christ for us the one visible Church pronounces on these matters infallibly, and we receive her doctrine, whether subjectively it fits in with our surmises or not. We believe that Christ left the Church to speak for him, that it speaks with his voice, that he is the head and we are the members. If Christ actually teaches through many forms, then from 15 centuries he taught that the Eucharist was his actual body and blood, and thereafter he taught part of his people that it was only a symbol. The Catholic can't live with this contradiction. I've seen it said that the Catholic is more interested in truth and the Protestant in goodness. I don't think there's too much of the formula except that it suggests a partial truth. The Catholic finds it easier to understand the atheist than the Protestant, but easier to love the Protestant than the atheist. The fact is, though now, that the fundamental Protestants, as far as doctrine goes, are closer to their traditional enemy, the Church of Rome, than they are to the advanced elements of Protestantism. You can know where I stand, what I believe, because I am a practicing Catholic, but I can't know what you believe unless I ask you. And then she says, you're right that enjoy is not exactly the right word for our talking about religion. As far as I know, it hurts like nothing else. We are at least together in the pain we share in this terrible division. It's the Catholic Church who calls you separated brethren, she who feels the awful loss. End quote. Beautiful, powerful words. I encourage you to maybe go back and listen to that part again. We'll also include it in the show notes. It means that either the Church has gotten the Eucharist right all along, or there's a failure in Jesus' transmission of this teaching to the apostles, or a failure in the Holy Spirit's guidance of the Church for 1,500 years. It does no good to say, well, you Catholics mean something institutional by church, and we mean all Christians. Because, and I really want to stress this point, all Christians in the early church believed in the real presence. St. Ignatius of Antioch, a disciple of the Apostle John, writes in about 107, warning against the Gnostics, who were a pagan group masquerading as Christians. He warns against them precisely because they didn't believe in the real presence. That's how far the Protestant view is outside of the mainstream of first and second century Christianity. It wasn't even a recognizably Christian view, according to the generation that learned directly from the apostles. Now, the only other thing I want to mention in regards to the Eucharist is the idea of the Mass as sacrifice. Now, Adam says...
1: On the on the sacrifice of the Mass... for. We don't typically talk about this as the sacrifice of the mass. Christ died once for all 2,000 years ago, or nearly 2,000 years ago. Um, he died, he gave himself up for us in that moment, a full and complete sacrifice for our sins. So we, we claim that, we accept it. But it's not, it's not that I have to, when I'm offering the Eucharist for you, I have to re-offer that to God on your behalf. It is that God is reminding you through the Eucharist, What Jesus has already done for you.
0: This misunderstands what the Mass is. It's not in the Catholic view even about re-killing Christ on Calvary. So there are two aspects of sacrifice. I think here about the Passover. First you have the killing of the victim, usually an animal. This is preparation day, the day before Passover. But then you have the blood being applied, the sacrifice being applied to those who is going to expiate. So in the case of the Passover this was done in two ways by smearing the blood on the doorposts and by eating the flesh of the lamb that had been slain. Now, what does that mean in the Christian context? Remember, Jesus presents the Last Supper as his Passover. So the first half of the Passover sacrifice, the kind of preparation day, is the killing of Christ. It's Good Friday, it's Calvary, and that is once for all, it's unrepeatable. But the need to have Christ's blood applied to us is continual. Is still part of this one sacrificial action, though. So we're repeating the Passover meal, not repeating preparation day. I mean, imagine if someone showed up late to the Passover. They could then take a portion of the lamb, and they would be entering into uh, a sacrifice that had already begun before them. And it wouldn't involve re-killing the lamb. That's the best easy analog. By the way, I actually wanna add one more point. So I'd say, look at the Passover, look at the way it corresponds with the passion, like the way that pre- like the Passover meal corresponds with Holy Thursday night, and the preparation day corresponds to Good Friday. And the evangelists are actually very, very clear about this once you're aware of that. But I'd also point you to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 22, because there, St. Paul uh, compares the Eucharistic sacrifice offered on what he calls the table of the Lord to the Jewish sacrifice in the temple and the pagan sacrifices on their altars, which he calls the table of demons. In other words, the way St. Paul presents the Eucharist is as a sacrifice. So I think understanding what Paul and the Catholic Church today mean by sacrifice helps understand uh, the meaning of the Mass. Now this really gets to a deeper question of what the sacraments are and also how many there are. Both Adam and Father Torricci speak of sacraments in a kind of vague and poorly defined way. It's basically anything through which we might possibly get grace, such that Adam suggests holding a newborn baby or watching a sunset could be a sacrament, since it draws us closer to God. Father Torricci, for his part, well, here's what he says
2: The Catholic Church ended up with seven sacraments, but that didn't happen until like Trent, 1700s. And so you have these, the, the canonical um, group of what was going to be, you know, a, um, agreed upon because there were a lot of differences among the bishops, the theologians, and all. What what would be the final look at what sacraments would be in the church, in the Catholic Church?
0: Oh, good to no, know. This is all wrong. First of all, the Council of Trent wasn't in the 1700s. It was from 1545 to 1563. So I should tell you off the bat the caliber of church history that you're getting here. But the more important point is that it just isn't true that the bishops and theologians went into the Council of Trent not knowing how many sacraments there were or deciding they needed to sit down and just like come up with the list. So to show this, I'm going to actually quote to you from the Ecumenical Council of Florence. I wanted to talk so much about this, but there was no way to make it fit without this being a ridiculously long episode. So by way of background, the Eastern Orthodox Church had sought reunion with the Catholic Church, and the two sides actually like sat down and talked and agreed and reunited, at least on paper. There's a remarkable and often forgotten moment in history. And so once the East and West seemed to be getting back together, Other churches, like the Armenian church that had broken off in the 5th century, uh, the Coptic church in Egypt and Ethiopia, uh, wanted to join as well. So briefly, at least on paper, like every major church in the world explicitly recognized that the pope was the vicar of Christ and the visible head of the church, until politics back home uh, made most of those churches recant. It's a fascinating history, it's an important part of church history, uh, but it also meant that the church was faced with this problem of having to really make sure her teachings were very clear because a lot of people who hadn't been Catholic were about to become Catholic. So one of the resulting documents is what's called the Bowl of Union with the Armenians. It was the way of like bringing the Armenians into the church. November 22nd, 1439. Here's what the Ecumenical Council declared. Quote, there are seven sacraments of the new law, namely baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, orders, and matrimony, which differ greatly from the sacraments of the old law. The latter were not causes of grace, but only prefigured the grace to be given through the passion of Christ, whereas the former, ours, both contain grace and bestow it on those who worthily receive them." Now the council goes on and has a much longer, much more detailed explanation of each of the seven sacraments. So anyone who imagines that the Catholic bishops at the Council of Trent didn't know about how many sacraments there were, really should go read this. (laughs) This is the Council of Florence. This is prior to Trent. This is prior to the Reformation. This is prior to the birth of Luther. There's perfect clarity that there are seven sacraments and why there are those seven. And so the council isn't just inventing this. The church is clarifying her teaching because a bunch of non-Catholics are coming into the church. If you want to go back further, you can find this explanation of the seven sacraments in the theology of people like St. Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274, or even before him to St. Peter Lombard, uh, 1096 to 1160, whose work, like his theology was read by all of the major schools uh, in in terms of Catholic seminary. So no, they weren't wondering 700 years later, uh, 600 years later, whether there were seven sacraments or not. And the council explains both that there are seven sacraments, but also why they're exactly seven. That these are the ways in which God is guaranteed to act as long as we approach with the right spiritual disposition. And you can stare at sunsets all you want. I wanted to say you can stare at sunsets as the day is long, but that doesn't really make sense. But God hasn't promised to give you grace through those. It might be a source of real grace. It might lead you to a deeper faith, or it might not. But the difference is the seven sacraments, we have divine promises attached to those things. We see from the very earliest days some form of these sacraments occurring, and so we can be assured that if we go with the right spiritual disposition, grace is coming. All right, so speaking of sacraments, let's close just by talking about marriage and annulment briefly. On the plus side, um, Adam makes a great case that contrary to what the Methodist Church officially believes... Marriage actually is a sacrament.
1: don't you know, consider marriage a sacrament, I personally see it much more sacramental. Jesus said, or Paul said, that this is a mystery. The love that a husband and wife share for each other is a picture of the love that Christ has for the church. The Greek word mysterion in Latin was sacramentum. And so even there once more you could find in marriage, it's a, it's a picture. It's a tangible way of showing the love that God has for us.
0: Adam's absolutely right. The passage that he's quoting from is Ephesians 5.32. Mysterium is a Greek word for sacrament. Even outside of Christianity, we find Romans using mysterium and sacramentum interchangeably. So St. Paul is drawing on sacramental language to describe marriage, and he's saying that marriage is a symbol in reference to Christ's union with the church. So the reason we speak of Christian marriage as a sacramental is because Paul's point about the way marriage is an image of Christ's relationship with the church just isn't true of two pagans. This is the difference between the sacramental marriage and what's called natural marriage. Because, you know, two pagans can get married, but it's not a sacrament in the sense that Paul's speaking of. So where do Methodists disagree?
1: There are times where Catholics take the Bible not only seriously, but even more literally than, you know, some Protestants do. So... You get to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and Jesus says this, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's what Moses said in the law. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And so that's a pretty harsh statement. Now, Jesus speaks in what we call prophetic hyperbole. Hyperbole is to exaggerate to make a point, like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Well, no, you're not.
0: So when Adam talks about prophetic hyperbole, he means that there are times in which Jesus' intention is not to express himself literally, but purposely to exaggerate. So for example, in Matthew five twenty nine, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. <laughs> well, hopefully you realize he's not literally calling on you to do that. He's exaggerating for dramatic effect to prove a point. That's prophetic hyperbole. So I get why Adam thinks that's what's going on here because the discussion of marriage in Matthew 5 comes immediately after that eye-plucking comment. So if Matthew 5 was all we had to go on, I'd actually be inclined to his reading myself probably. Fortunately though, that's not all the evidence we have. We also have Jesus' teaching found in Luke 16, in Mark 10, and in Matthew 19. The last of these has the most detail. I want to talk about it a little more in depth. So the Pharisees approach Jesus and ask. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now that any cause question is actually a technical rabbinical dispute over Deuteronomy 24, which permitted a husband to divorce his wife if, quote, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, end quote. So what does that mean? Well, within Judaism at the time, there were two major schools, Shammai and Hillel. Shammai took the view that it meant what it obviously seems to mean, cases of marital infidelity. But Halal and his followers took it to be much broader that if for any reason a wife lost the favor of her husband, he could divorce her. So rabbis within this school went so far as to say that he could divorce her if she ruined a dish or simply because he found someone prettier than her. So the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to pick one of these two signs. One of them seems more faithful to scripture. One of them was more popular with men. But as is so often, Jesus does neither of these things. Instead, he reminds him that, quote, in the beginning it was not so, end quote, because God made marriage so the two would become one flesh. And then he said, what therefore God has joined together, let man not put asunder. So Jesus is rejecting both positions, and in the process closing the Deuteronomy 24 loophole altogether. And we know this from the context because the Pharisees immediately come back with, well then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? And Jesus responds, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, he's not saying, let's abolish the Old Testament. He's restoring God's vision of marriage to its original, proper, pristine state, what's described in Genesis, before it's corrupted by sin and the the hardness of the hearts of the Israelites. Now this isn't just an elaborate instance of prophetic hyperbole so that Jesus can just say, Hillel is right or Shammai is right. He's showing that the Mosaic laws were temporary and that he, Jesus, is restoring creation to a higher order and calling us to a higher moral law. Now this is a crucial pivot in the difference between Christian and Jewish ethics, and ultimately it's basically inseparable from the fact that you're able to eat bacon cheeseburgers. Then we get to the most critical words in the dialogue. Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, fornication, and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, these are the same words Jesus gives in Matthew 5. And Adam quotes him there, but says, except for unchastity. Well, that's a common mistranslation. It's not what the Greek says. If Jesus was saying that divorce was okay in cases of sexual infidelity, he'd just be siding with the Shammai group, which he he takes pains not to do. In fact, Jesus is raising the bar. So it would actually be an even broader loophole, since remember, he says even intentional lust is a form of adultery. The loophole would basically destroy the indissolubility of marriage. Think about it. According to the market research group, Barna Group, uh, 62% of Christian men look at pornography at least once a month. It's an epidemic in marriages, even within Christian marriages. So if Jesus is saying divorce isn't okay unless one of you falls into the sense of lust, that loophole swallows the whole. It's bigger than, the exception is bigger than the rule. So it's not what he's saying. What does the Greek actually say? Well, speaking of pornography... The word here, as I said, is porneia, which is actually the root of the English word, but it means fornication. It's never used in the Bible to mean adultery. In fact, go back and read Matthew 19:9, 9, and he says, "Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, except for cause of porneia, commits adultery." So whatever porneia means, it clearly doesn't mean adultery, because he's using that word two other times in Matthew 19, not here. So what does it mean? Well, remember. Fornication is two people who aren't married, in the eyes of God, sleeping together. So the Jews used the term to refer to marriages which weren't recognized by God. For example, uh, the Roman state might recognize two near relatives getting married. But God doesn't recognize that. So it wasn't a lawful marriage, it was just fornication, it was just porneia. Well, I mean, you can apply it today. If a gay couple comes to you and says, you know, we want to follow the law of God for marriage. We don't know if we're able to get divorced or not. You know, like they're convicted. We think gay marriage is wrong. But we also think divorce is wrong. We don't know what to do. Well, the Christian response is definitely you can get divorced here because God didn't join you two together. It's just porneia, it's not marriage. It's just fornication. What this means is that what appears to be an exception clause in Matthew isn't really an exception at all. It just adds extra clarity. Mark and Luke, uh, they don't have this exception clause in their versions. So unless Jesus is teaching contradictory things to Matthew on the one hand and Mark and Luke on the other, the adultery exception clause is just a bad theory. And so the whole question then is about whether or not God actually joined the husband and wife together in the first place. And there are all sorts of things that can make this a complicated question. If one of the partners wasn't serious about marriage or they weren't free to get married or they were psychologically or mentally incapable of contracting marriage or there was duress or there was force or so on and so forth. The couple might have been totally without sin. It might have looked like a marriage on the outside. They might have innocently believed that there was a marriage and still for one of these reasons, they weren't able to freely enter into marriage. And it has to be a free act. Well, that obviously leads us to the whole discussion of an annulment. That's what an annulment is. It's literally a declaration of nullity. It's a declaration that, to the best of our judgment, there was never a marriage here in the first place. Now, Adam and Father Ricci spend a whole lot of time talking about annulments in the final class but without actually defining them very well. And Adam even says the practice is intended to help pave the way for second marriages, by making sure that the first relationship is really over.
1: The process is about ensuring that pastoral care and healing have happened for the relationship of the past. So you're going to spend some time talking with the ex and finding out, okay, what do we do to make sure that this relationship, the end of that relationship is ended in a healthy way to the degree that we can do anything about it?
0: Now I know that the annulment process in the US is grossly abused. We make up only 6% of the world's Catholics, but a whopping 60% of the world's annulments. Those stats are in the show notes. Either we're really bad at getting married, or a lot of priests and bishops and tribunals are treating this as kind of a nod and wink Catholic divorce. Or both. And indeed, uh, Father Ricci openly talks about abusing the system to get an annulment for his wife. Here I want to add um, a bit of a mea culpa. In episode one, it sounded like he was saying that he left the church to marry his wife because she was a divorcee. Apparently, he actually served as her priest to get her an annulment, and he shopped around to file the paperwork in Jefferson City rather than the Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas, because they thought that they would be more uh, pastoral. So I got that detail of his story wrong in the last episode. I'm actually more confused now about why he left the church than before I listened to him talk about it for hours. Uh, But the more important point here is that this is an abuse of a system rooted in the gospel. Pope John Paul II actually pushed back against this kind of abuse, saying that an unjust declaration of nullity is particularly serious because, given its official relation with the church, it favors the spread of attitudes in which the indissolubility is affirmed in word, but obscured in life. In other words, when Catholic dioceses treat annulments as if it's an automatic grant. It reinforces the idea that they're just Catholic divorce. And it makes it look like Catholic teaching on marriage is just lip service. And I think both Adam and Father Toro Ricci kind of refer to this, they, they recognize this problem. And so I agree, there's definitely a way uh, that we're doing annulments in this country wrong, and it's pretty problematically. I think anyone who cares about the church's teaching would say that there's a problem. But at the core of the issue, This idea of determining whether or not a marriage was valid from the start, well, that's just obedience to Christ's teaching. It's determining whether or not God joined the two people together, in which case they're bound until death do them part and can't go marry some other person, or that it was just pornea the entire time. It was just fornication, even if there's no sin attached there because it was an innocent mistake. In which case the two parties are free to go get married. But for that process to work and to work well, the spouses or putative spouses and the church's officials who are involved in the process, they've got to care more about the truth and fidelity to the gospel than about convenience or about making either party or their family happy. And all of that takes courage. The final point, just to end the conversation on marriage and divorce and really the entire episode on a brighter note Well, remember how Adam said that marriage was a sacrament because it's an image of Christ's love for the church? This is why we care. St. Paul talks about how the name of every fatherhood comes from God the Father, meaning, in other words, your kid's understanding of God the Father is shaped in a profound way, for good or for ill, by their experience of their own father's love. So, too, their experience of Christ the bridegroom's love for his bride, the church, is going to be shaped, in some way, by whether or not they see healthy, stable marriages or whether they see unions in which selfishness and divorce are the norm. So the commitment to the inviability of marriage, the permanence of marriage, is not just obedience to Christ. It's not just good for the family unit. It's not just good for all the kids who get hurt by divorce and by annulments even. It's also a sort of prophetic sign to the world that there is a love that lasts even when things are tough. Okay, I know that was a lot of ground and that this episode is longer than our normal target range of 40 to 55 minutes. So thanks for sticking with me on that. And I hope that it was helpful to you in some way. Whether you're Catholic, Methodist, or other, I hope you'll come back next week. Shorter episodes, uh, but all throughout Lent, we're going to be doing a six-week series based on the Stations of the Cross and applying it to the lives of ordinary Christians. Chloe was kind of the mastermind for a lot of these episodes. I'm excited at what she's got planned, and I think you're going to like it too. Let's close in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.